Good evening. My name is Andrew. Um, for those of you don't, who don't know me, and um, I have travelled many thousands of miles from the land of Oz on a perilous journey to be with you tonight. And, um, and it's lovely to be here with you all. Um, it was a bit perilous getting through customs, especially when you have a guitar, it always looks a bit suspicious. <clears throat> this is the third day of a full, third full day of session, and um, I know if your body is anything like my body, then you're beginning to say hello to some old friends. Those little sort of niggly pains in the back, like someone's screwing their finger in. <clears throat> and um, so just soften without soothe. <laughs> and mm, sit comfortably. Tonight I'm going to blend uh, a Jukai talk and a Denkai talk. Back in my hometown, um, in my uh, Sangha, we did do a precepts discussion group a couple of years ago, uh, very similar in format to your own. And, um, however, we didn't have a teacher who was able to do Jukai and ceremony. And so it's been wonderful sort of doing both ceremonies at the same time with you today. I have been marinating slowly since September in the ordinary mind Zendo, New York. And um, I had the good fortune to um, participate in the, uh, the final two Jukai classes with my Jukai brothers and sisters and my precept teacher, Claire. And um, it was wonderful to be allowed into your sacred space and to have that experience. Thank you. And <clears throat> I also want to thank um, my Sangha, my family here, and um, for your warm hospitality, and especially those Sangha members who have taken me out for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, who have also invited me back to their homes for a wonderful home-cooked meal, which um, is a lot better than that kind of stuff I was cooking for myself. So thank you. <laughs> and... Um, also, the, um, some trips to the art gallery was very much appreciated. Um, this extra time here has been wonderful in, in deepening my connection with you all. <clears throat> um, The precepts, um, I'm going to sort of have a, a kind of theme running through, are uh, 
the first two precepts, which I I was struck by the when we when we look at the precepts from the affirmative or positive point of view, or the uh, from the point of view of the body's out of our way, and uh, so the precepts as a manifestation of that. So uh, the what I've been contemplating over the past few days um, is to cherish life, to love life, and to practice appreciation and, and gratitude for what we freely receive. <clears throat> merciful incarnation of the awakened one um, who we meet every day uh, to love our food that we eat and enjoy it (laughs) the clothes that we wear our relationship with inanimate objects um, to love them to love the shower in the morning and to take delight in each other's company and relationships. Our whole life is a gift. Um, I also want to express gratitude to my teachers tonight. Um, As you know, teachers are thousands and thousands of teachers. And... um, so I'm only going to be able to mention a few tonight, a few special ones. And um, it's now become the tradition here to um, do some heart-to-heart sharing in the Duke Guy talk, so I thought I'd better do a little bit of that as well. And, and finish with something about what teaching means to me. So, gratitude, from the very beginning, nothing is lacking. Um, But um, speaking of the land of Oz, um, I guess we often all start off something like Dorothy and Scarecrow and Tin Man and the Lion, searching for that which we think is missing. And even though that's been present all the time, Sometimes it um, does require a whole lot of heartbreak and trials and tribulations to um, finally arrive at an understanding of that which we thought was missing was there all the time. And um, this kind of fits into the theme of, um, of sudden and, and uh, gradual awakening. Um, so... From a sudden perspective, every time we sit down on our cushion, as Barry says, we say hello to our original face. Um, it's the each moment. Yeah. And um, on the other hand, um, there's this gradual process we go through called life where if we're lucky, um, our character matures along the way and um, 
there's something about what I want to say about Barry's teaching about that and about the way in which this Sangha works um, in terms of opening up to our vulnerabilities and um, expressing those and softening as we go and uh, till our hearts break, so to speak. Um, but, you know, like Dorothy and the boys, um, in uh, Sydney is often, in Australia, it's often sometimes referred to affectionately as the Emerald City. And um, as you know, we can get quite distracted in the Emerald City. And... Uh, and uh, the Emerald City can also contain lots of um, false prophets and snake oil salesmen. And um, we are very fortunate indeed um, to be able to find a good teacher. Someone who can help us to um, step off the uh, relentless treadmill of self-deficit and self-improvement and arrive at a place of self-acceptance. Joker Beck once described the process of the stages of Zen as going from doing harm to self and others to not doing harm to self and others. And uh, that's very simple. And um, I think what Barry's helped me to understand is also a process of going from self-rejection to self-acceptance. Gratitude can sometimes come upon us like grace and can be quite unexpected. I remember once, about 20 years ago, I was on a 10-day insight meditation retreat in the Blue Mountains near Sydney. And uh, I was getting probably on the ninth day, having gone through all the various stages of painful sensations and uh, sitting through long periods of time and experiencing some blissful sensations and thinking, yeah, this must be it. <laughs> and, um, and then uh, leaving the meditation hall one evening and uh, just seeing this insect that had been injured and uh, it was being eaten by other insects and I had this, this wave of compassion came over me and it was followed by this intense feeling of gratitude for everything and everyone and what I've realized over my years of working with Barry um, is that, that, that feeling of gratitude, um, you don't necessarily have to spend hours and hours of intense meditation practice to actually experience that. It might not be so intense, but uh, that act of saying yes to life and the act of appreciating the leaves and the trees, the flowers, each other, even that shit stick in the toilet, um, so to speak, of an old koan, um, is it doesn't necessarily require long, arduous hours of grueling, going through pain, meditation. 
just a matter of opening our hearts to what is. And of course, um, our experience of gratitude is very much interconnected with the fleetingness of life and the transience of life. We all know that. Even we all know we're going to die, but we, you know, I think, you know, unconsciously still we still think our days are numberless. And um, I was reading uh, Norman Fisher, the Zen teacher, and he did some. Uh, he was talking about the subjectivity of time, and he did some. Um, I don't know how he arrived at this. This was his own calculations, but he reckons that because time speeds up as you're getting older, that by the time you're 50 years old, you've used up 95% of your time. <laughs> That's a bit scary, eh? I'm already past 50, so... So, uh, maybe the appreciation of the fight and fight, finiteness of our existence helps us to experience <laughs> gratitude. And um, that old saying that we sometimes say at the end of a day, sitting... Do not squander this precious life. So um, it's probably easier to appreciate, you know, and life and be gratitude, feel gratitude for life when we're out in nature at a picnic, um, spending time with loved ones, doing things we enjoy doing, going for a walk in the woods. By the way, I've really enjoyed um, hanging out at uh, Central Park. Um, it's been uh, glorious watching the slow change of the trees. And, um, and I did spend, you know, I, was, I was privileged to have some solitude, like a Zen sabbatical, and actually sit in the park and uh, do some reading, which I haven't done since I was an, an adolescent. Um, you know, what we call in Australia wagging school, what you call it here when you take a day off from school where you're not supposed to. Hooky. Hooky. Playing, yeah, hooky. playing hooky, yeah. I seen Huckleberry Finn, but not, not Huckleberry Finn. Tom, Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer, yeah. Um, and just, just, just watching life go by and watching the leaves fall, reading a book and just enjoying my own company. Um, though it's really easy to appreciate gratitude at those times and, um, and that's probably the, your, your Thanksgiving Day holiday which unfortunately I won't be here for but like uh, a lovely celebration of the bounty of life and the harvests um, but what about when the uh, you know the harvest or the crops fail and the harvest is bitter and our hopes and dreams don't work out as we would like them to hope, as we would like them to work out. And how do we, how do we work? How do we still experience gratitude or gifts in those situations? Uh, you know, being, being, being human, we're more than likely going to see these things as misfortunes that happen to us. Um, but um, I think you'd agree with the. Uh, the benefit of um, hindsight, maybe, um, often when we look back at those misfortunes which happened to us, we can see the alternative story. Uh, maybe not when we're in the midst of it happening, but you know, 
and we've got a bit of hindsight. And we can see how those, um, what we initially perceived as misfortunes, um, you know, we, we could reframe them as learning experiences, or we can see how they actually maybe, from a Zen perspective, led us to practice and uh, led us all, you know, all the karmic interconnections that led us all here to be with each other today. And um, I guess that's why the Buddha said that, you know, it's much better to be born in the human realm than in the heavenly abodes um, because, you know, a little bit of suffering is necessary. Hopefully not too much. <laughs> and, um, but these, these, um, these preliminaries, which, if we're fortunate enough, help us to find this path. Um, we've all experienced our versions of those, whether it's physical illness or mental illness with ourselves or with our families, whether it's financial hardship, loss or separation. All these universal human experiences, old age, sickness and death, which all eventually, if we're fortunate, bring us to this path. And um, so... As is the custom, I'd like to share a couple of personal stories. Um, and uh, first of all, express my gratitude to my mother and father and my sister. And um, uh, my father, a uh, World War II veteran, uh, he served in North Africa and Burma. Um, he was away for the whole of the war, five, six years, uh, where my mum never saw him and she had her first child. Um, God knows what, what traumas he went through, as like all the veterans. Um, of course, he never spoke about them. Um, but growing up, um, I was, you know, had his old photographs of his uh, time during the war, these little black and white photographs of uh, the pyramids in Egypt. And um, he was in the tanks. He was a navigator, so... As a child, I would play with tanks and soldiers and um, make models of battleships and things. And uh, Dad also um, loved sport. Uh, in England, it's football and cricket. As he got older, he lawn bowls. And um, his way of connecting with me was usually through sport, and that was fine. It was, um, it was wonderful to spend time with him and... Sometimes he'd take me to Manchester to see the uh, Manchester United play at Old Trafford. They were special occasions. The other times I'd take myself off to Oldham Athletic, the local club, and watch them get beaten. Um, Especially my gratitude to my mother for birthing me and for nurturing me and uh, for being at home for me. And... Um, and my sister, who's about you know, six or seven years older than me, who also spent a lot of time playing with me. And um, so I think I was very fortunate to have a fairly safe and uh, warm and loving uh, house to grow up in. Um, so, um, you know, there were things in the outside world, like you know, fights with other kids, and uh, I had the usual... Anxieties sometimes at night time, fear of not being able to breathe, um, fear of a 
a Martian invasion. But these are normal kid, you know, kids' experiences. And, um, uh, and the family was you know, nominally Church of England, but fairly secular. Um, I think um, Santa Claus was the most important religious figure in my life, and these, these presents wouldn't you know, miraculously appear. And uh, that was pretty magic for a while. Um, and um, so I guess, yeah, um, sort of fond memories of childhood. And even adolescence, where we, we came to Australia when I was 13, just turned 13, because my sister had migrated to Australia. And um, I was, that was a wonderful, that was a five-week voyage for a 13-year-old. Uh, I was old enough to, could, you know, I could see all the factories around me and I could see it wasn't a great place to grow up in anymore. Once all the childhood fantasies had disappeared. And um, so the trip to Australia was like a, again, it was like a, yeah, it was a new, adventurous new start. And, and for me, it was, it was, it was quite spectacular, wonderful. Um, and... Uh, and adolescence went well, um, you know, the usual ups and downs, falling in love, falling, getting rejected, drawing experiments with drugs and alcohol and so forth. And, um, uh, but basically my parents gave me the, gave me the, uh, the freedom to, to really discover, make my mistakes and discover my own values. And... Um, Hence, um, you know, I never had any, because of that, I didn't have any, I never had any aversion to religion. Um, and I think I'll, there was always a part of me that had a religious inclination. <laughs> Funny as it sounds, but like, um, um, I remember when I, was, when, when I was having those night fears as a kid, I once found a little crucifix on the road and put it under my pillow, and that seemed to help for a while. And... Uh, um, and um, when I, in my adolescence, and I, I remember this little uh, in this, the town where I grew up in Australia called Wollongong, which is near Sydney, um, in the in the sixties, and it had this little. In, oh, when I was an adolescent, it was the early seventies, and um, there was this little bookshop down this little alleyway. It was called the Inner Light Bookshop, you know. And you walked into the Inner Light Bookshop. Madame Blavatsky books and this and that, you know, the secret doctrine. It was all very fascinating, and I thought, you know, yes, uh, there must be lots of masters up there on the Himalayas. We'll have to get there one day. Um, unfortunately, I never got to India. That was one of the things I wanted to do, but um, I came to New York instead, and that was much better. Um, so... Um, Later on in life, in my, in my mid-30s, I actually thought about becoming a Christian priest in the Anglican Church. I actually enrolled for a couple of months, um, but um, just, couldn't, just couldn't relate to the scriptures. I thought I could do an Alan Watts and you know, um, become a Christian you know, priest and, and do a Christian meditation. And, um, but no, I just didn't quite fit into the, uh, into, the, uh, into the Sangha very well, I don't think. And... Um, so there's always probably been a part of me. I guess uh, the, the this is the closest I'm going to get to becoming a priest. Um, I guess Denkai in our tradition is the closest you get to becoming a priest. And, you know, you get to wear black shirts, so that looks pretty good too. Especially when you wear a white T-shirt. Um, 
relieved. Um, so, but anyway, my, uh, my, my life fell apart after high school, after adolescence. Um, and um, it started with um, my, um, my sister, um, when I finished high school, uh, my sister had actually moved back to England for a little while, which um, upset my mother a great deal. So we went back on a holiday to see her, and I had some time in, in London on my own. And, um, and that, that we were spending Christmas with my, my sister. And um, just prior to the Christmas Day, um, my sister and my brother-in-law, who was also very close to, sat me down. And um, they told me um, about something. And I'd, I knew my dad had not been well uh, during my first year in Australia. Um, I know he, apparently he was very homesick, but, um, but also um, he had to go to hospital. And um, I think at the time I'd been told he had a tumour uh, on his brain. So I would go with mum to the hospital in Sydney and uh, I would navigate for her. And uh, he had a few months in hospital, which I didn't affect me at all. I just continued with my life as if nothing had happened. I enjoyed my evenings with my mother and we'd visit dad. And, and he came home and um, he had to change jobs, but I, you know, I didn't think much about that. I just accepted that. He'd initially been a lecturer in the, one of the colleges, and uh, then he had to. And then he started working at the steelworks as a clerk. But it didn't sort of. I was too young to think much about that. Um, and um, so they sat me down one night, and they actually explained what had happened, and they told me the pretty uh, explicit details of what had happened. And so Dad had a, a pretty major psychiatric disorder. He had a breakdown. And uh, he'd done some behaviours which were totally out of character, uh, which I won't go into, but needless to say, they were quite shameful. And um, so that was the first thing that happened. And I didn't realise at the time, but that was quite traumatising for me. And um, it was something I've, I've worked through over the years. And uh, I think I'm okay about it now. And... Um, and um, it, 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 it was a shock, though, and um, but some, you know to, to find out that, um, that this side of my dad, which I just couldn't um, comprehend, and oh, I'm, I'm grateful to my parents for they, they protected me from it and allowed me to get on with my adolescence. My mother, I mean, my mother also, she was an amazing woman. She um, lost her, she didn't even really know her own father who was um, um, sent to uh, an asylum when she was a child um, and never came out in those days. She often didn't come out. And uh, she was, and her mother worked. She was basically raised by her, her, um, her brother and one sister. And... Um, so mum had a, lost a father to mental illness and, uh, and her husband went through this. And Anyway, she kept it all together. She was the rock of the family. She really was and still is, God bless her. She's currently in a nursing home and she's made that transition at that point. She's 92 years old. 
Um, so anyway, I, I thought, well, I'll get on with my life. I was, uh, I don't know, this, my dad thing, that won't affect me. I'm invincible. I'll go down to university. And uh, so I was enrolled to go down to the um, uh, Australian National University in Canberra, the capital. And uh, I was a very serious young man in those days, probably still am. So I enrolled in existentialism and uh, 19th century Russian literature. <laughs> I wanted to do my project on suicide. <laughs> and um, and uh, very early on, I was living in a college and um, it was a Catholic college, you know. It was a bit strange. We had to wear these gowns for formal Sunday dinners. And we're all living in these little rooms. Uh, we had, a, you know, of course we had some parties. And I, I met this young woman at a party, as you do. And uh, she was sitting in a chair looking quite depressed. So I went over and talked to her. And very soon we became friends. And then lovers. And then... Um, um, one one night before we were uh, due to go on the Easter holiday break, and, um, I went round to see her, and um, we had our first argument, and uh, an argument fueled by my jealousy um, over something and some alcohol, and I said some quite hurtful words to her. Um, and left the next day to go to my parents' place for the holidays, um, not knowing that um, that was the last time I'd ever see her again. So as, uh, I arrived back at the university after the, after the holiday break, and this friend came running up saying, Andrew, Andrew, where have you been? We, th we thought you were with... And uh, her car had spun off the road and hit a tree. She probably died immediately and um, I um, went to the funeral and gave a eulogy and packed my bags and dropped out of university um, went back to my parents' place and um, got a little flat near the beach uh, where I was then and got a job at the steelworks uh, with the intention of you know, saving up some money to go to Paris and be a writer like we were going to. And, uh, and then uh, you know, met the woman who was to become my first wife who was a few years older than me and had a couple of kids and uh, she was a safe harbour. Well, I thought she was a safe harbour. And um, I should have known when she told me she'd been in the uh, men mental health unit for a couple of weeks herself. Um, but being young and naive and invincible, I thought I could handle anything, and, and I couldn't handle her very well. And um, she had two lovely little boys. And I did my best to be a kid myself and tried to be a father. And uh, would stay up on Friday nights uh, 
watching David Carradine in Kung Fu. <laughs> I would, wouldn't mind being a Kung Fu Zen kind of person, just sort of wandering around. The funny thing is, when I started to correspond with Barry, um, I used to end my email with Casho uh, 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 Andrew. But you know how the, your phone sometimes changes the word if it doesn't recognize a word? And this is true. It would change Gasho to grasshopper. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so it began, okay, well, that's the way it's going to be. I'll just sign it grasshopper. <laughs> And uh, the other night, uh, Barry held out his hand and I grabbed it. <laughs> Unfortunately, I haven't got to do the Chinese dragon thing, you know. But who knows, Kara might be doing that tonight, so <laughs> wait and see. Um, a few years later, um, the marriage was on the rocks and... Uh, you know, we conceive the child as you do when your marriage is on the rocks. And uh, so I thought, you know, I just read this book called The Seven Pillars of, what was it called? The Three Pillars of Zen? Seven Pillars of Zen? The Kepler's book. Maybe I'd better start sitting. Zazen. That might help me to deal with the situation and maybe help me to become a better father. And uh, so I went along to the Sydney, Sydney Zen Centre, which is the Diamond Sangha, and started sitting Zazen. And look, things went all right for a couple of years. It probably wasn't because of the Zazen, but um, the, the little boy, Joshua, was very much loved by everybody, and it sort of united everybody. And, but, you know, after a couple of years, things fell apart again. But I... It was um, that little birth of that boy, and little beautiful little Buddha baby and when they sit up at three months on the horn, you know, this it's just perfect and uh, so um, so those, 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 those two key events in my life my father's illness and um, the death of the, the tragic death of the young woman um, who knows what, what, what kind of influence they had in the course my life took but um, you know, certainly with my father's mental illness, um, it's probably what motivated me to get eventually involved in mental health work as a social worker and then as a therapist. Probably was the reason why I got into, you know, one of the reasons why I got into personal therapy for myself to work through a lot of that stuff about my father. And one of the reasons that led me to Barry. Um, um, The death of the young woman, that confrontation with death, so it taught me to be careful around what I say. Um, took me still a bit more learning along the way to to finally be as aware as I can about being careful not to hurt people, but it still happens. Um, but that led me to marriage and and then to having Joshua and and to practicing Zazen. So, um, 
There are all these funny, circuitous routes that, that bring us to this practice, which for me, I think, saved my life. Um, and um, so, I just want to say, acknowledge and pay homage to a few more teachers. Um, I started working with Barry when I was, just after I'd left Australia and was living in New Zealand for a while. And um, when I returned from New Zealand, we moved to this, uh, we didn't know where we were gonna live, but we moved to this little town called Bellingen and on the uh, mid-north coast of New South Wales. And I, first of all, started sitting with a friend called Vince Jensen, who used to sit in San Diego with Joko for many years, and we would sit together in my house. And uh, I got Vince's name from Jeff Dawson in Sydney when I did a session with him. He's an ordinary mind teacher in Sydney. So me and Vince started sitting together. Then I, uh, then I got to know about this other Zen teacher in town called Sexton Burke, who had just become a Roshi and uh, in the Diamond Sangha. And um, so we decided to join forces and we sat with Sexton. And uh, Sexton was in various stages of uh, cancer. Um, and um, he knew he was dying, but he, ha- he, he wanted to do his teach as best as he could with the time he had left. So he would, he would, he would, uh, he decided he would sit in the mornings because that was the time he had the greatest level of energy. And he would sit from 6 till 7 a.m. Uh, every morning, except for Sundays when we started 9 a.m. and he started doing some talks on the Moomin Camp. So we would, we would get up at 5.30 and drive into town and those beautiful mornings where the stars were still out and birds were just beginning to sing. And uh, we'd sit for an hour with Sexton. And everyone would go, and I would stay behind and, and do uh, duck a sound with him. And we'd start working on the introductory koans. And um, always remember his eyes. Yeah, he had blue eyes. Eyes like a compassionate ocean, which indeed was his Dharma name, given to him by Subana, who was his teacher. And um, just remember seeing the world through Sexton's blue, compassionate eyes, and just seeing that uh, that that's this dewdrop existence that we have even more deeply, and uh, enjoying the playfulness of the koans and and dancing the mountains, and it was wonderful. Um, he taught for as long as he could. Uh, I always remember uh, we used to sit in the yoga studio, so walking back down the alleyway that led to the yoga studio to his old, battered old ute, and uh, always wondering with this little ass walk we'd have together. And, um, and then one day he could no longer come anymore, so he, he, was, um, he was at home and uh, he would um, sit, I, I, I went to say my last 
goodbye to him, he was sitting by the fire, it was winter. And his eyes were still sparkling and he was still appreciating and enjoying each moment of his life. And so I'd just like to say my gratitude for Sexton to him. I can hope I can go through my final days like he did. Before Sexton died, he, he, he arranged for our little group to be a, a teacher called Ellen Davison to come down. It was about a three and a half hour drive from where she lives up at uh, the Shannon uh, in Lismore near Byron Bay. And uh, Ellen was very gracious in coming down. And um, I've got to say that um, I've got to acknowledge. Um, Barry's graciousness here as well because Barry's always been my primary teacher, a root teacher and um, because of the distance um, you know, Barry uh, uh, gave his consent for me to work with, first of all with Sexton and then with Ellen and um, so Ellen would then come down and I continued my command work with Ellen so I'd also like to acknowledge Ellen and, and thank her for helping me through some of the subtle nuances of the Cohen work. And uh, she did a great job filling Sexton's big shoes. He did have big feet. And, um, and uh, so thank you, Ellen, for that. Um, Barry, um, uh, it's been lovely digesting you all these years. And um, I... I hope we can, I can continue digesting you for a few more years yet. Um, um, there's a famous uh, haiku, um, and um, by Issa, and it's called, goes, this dewdrop world is a dewdrop world. And yet, and yet. So, we all know we are dewdrops and everything's transient. But it's the and yet, and yet bit, which is the interesting bit. Issa had a lot of loss in his life and uh, lost his mother when he was very young, uh, lost some young children, had a lot of grief. Um, but I think Barry's teaching speaks to this and yet, and he helps us to make sense out of it. And he helps us to realize that it's the, um, what it means to be a human being, all the emotions that we go through. Um, that's where the juice is. And um, this is about enjoying our lives, loving our lives, loving each other. And we can't do that unless we also hurt. And it's been a wonderful gift that you've given me, Barry, in showing me how Zen works like that. But it's not about becoming detached from things. But it's about embracing our attachments to the people and things we love in this world. 
Some people call that soul making. We can call it whatever we like, but that aspect of the Zen practice I really love, and you've really taught me that. Um, I'd also just like to acknowledge another great teacher, my wife Annie. Um, unfortunately, she didn't stay very long, so we didn't get a chance to know her very well. But she's a very natural Zen master. And, and she's taught me how to be honest. And she's taught me how to meet each other on a level ground. She's punctured my self-importance when it needed puncturing. She's um, made me aware of the dangers of trying to teach something as if I've got it and they or she hasn't and brought my attention to that. Sometimes we talk, in Zen, sometimes we talk about reality with a capital R and truth with a capital T and, um, and this, you know, this discourse about you know, truth and reality being beyond discourse, which is another discourse. Um, so Annie's helped me to, you know, just be wary of truth with a capital T. So thank you, Annie. So to finish, um, Barry's given me this beautiful gift of a green makasu like the rainforest in Bellingen. I hope he doesn't come to regret his decision. Um, so what, what am I going to do next? I'm not quite sure. Um, 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 I, I probably need to set up uh, an independent zendo. Um, I'm happy for that to be a little boutique zendo um, with very rich students. <laughs> and... Uh, but I'll also be very open to distant students as well because that's how I got started and I need to honour that. Um, and, um, and of course I uh, want to follow in the footsteps of uh, you know, Barry and, and Joko. Um, and I was thinking about no game and uh, how could I make that into my own unique teaching? And I was thinking, well, maybe we could set up a, a no game scale so I could say, Bob, out of 10 on the no-gain scale, whereabouts are you? <laughs> and if they say, oh, about five, Andrew. Well, how does that feel? What if you got to seven? How would that feel? <laughs> what if you got to 10 on the no-gain scale? How would that feel? Whoa. Now we're really talking. <laughs> So um, I will do my best to maintain this wonderful no-gain dharma and, um, and uh, you know, share this dharma with, with all those who um, are wanting to hear it and see it. And um, I hope I can continue teaching for as long as my physical body and mental body will allow me. So... Um, um, Barry, um, thank you for this precious gift. Um, I, I know how precious it is to you. And, um, and um, I just want to finish by reading out a very um, ancient koan, which some of you may be familiar with. 
What is real? asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having that things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off. Your eyes drop out. <laughs> and you get loose in the joints. <laughs> and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all. Because once you are real, you can't be ugly. Except to people who don't understand. I suppose you are real, said the rabbit. And then he wished he had not said it. For he thought the skin horse might be sensitive. But the skin horse only smiled.